This is Dave Brown, and welcome to the Frontline Freedom Adventure Therapy Podcast. As an adventure therapy nonprofit organization, we cater to frontline workers, especially those in the public safety and healthcare sectors. On this podcast, we cover relevant topics to public safety and our frontline workers' overall health by exploring the mental health benefits gained through outdoor recreation, leadership development, and self-improvement. If you have a story you'd like to share, send us an email at podcast at frontlinefreedom.org. If you're looking for more information about Frontline Freedom Adventure Therapy Trips, check out our website at www.frontlinefreedom.org. Welcome back to the Frontline Freedom Podcast, everyone. This is Josh and Dave, and we are joined today with Austin, Carlos, and Rocky once again. Thanks for joining us, gentlemen. Thanks for having us on, guys. All right, today, um, kind of an open-ended discussion, but it's just going to be kind of drawing on personal experiences, what we've dealt with in the the line of... uh, law enforcement in general, because that's what all of these uh, fine men um, do for a living is the profession of law enforcement. And so what we're going to talk about today is steps that police leaders can take to improve officer mental health. So I'll kind of open up the floor because there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. And I don't think uh, enough time and attention is paid from a leadership standpoint to see how impactful that can be. But before we go down that rabbit hole, I'm going to open up to you guys and see what your thoughts are on all that. I'll, uh, I'll kind of piggyback. So um, you know, I was looking in obviously for topics for this and, you know, it talks about like with PTSD, with people in first responding community, whether it's fire service, police, ER, trauma, nurses, you know, whatever, that leadership or people, you know, tasked with being in those positions, helping their people if it's like a shared experience where we share the burden versus, you know, we've all seen good and bad within our career as far as leadership and, I guess, circumstances we've witnessed within our careers, um, whether it's traumatic or whatever. And what, more or less, there's going to be a plethora of people listening to this, right? So, like, we have guys on patrol. You have two in here that are, I guess, at a sergeant level. Um, And you have somebody that is um, executive level. So, you know, it'll give... A lot of different ranks context depending on what service you're in of, of hey what can we do collectively I guess as a group to just make sure all of our people are good from the very top guy to the most junior person I think you bring up a good point talking about the PTSD portion uh, when when officers are involved in you know critical incidents or anything that's significant uh, a good leader can step in and he'll be basically your frontline defense for you. You know, a good leader can come in and say, hey, listen, I know you just went through something. Sit down with that individual, that officer, and, and be able to talk to them first to really to start picking up on those uh, issues that they're seeing right away or just right after the incident, you know, his ends making sure, hey, first off, are you okay, mm-hmm. rather than worry about any other issues. And I think a good leader can really can really step in and help help that as a first-line defense there for, for officers. Yeah, and I... I'm going to piggyback on what he said. Um, the the big part of that is is being there with you, though, right? And mm-hmm. I, I think the as we evolve as a profession, I think the old days of you know the sergeant sitting back at the shop or or the lieutenant sitting at their office all day that's kind of a dying model, I think. And I think it's mm-hmm. important first and foremost that you're out there and you see it too, see see what people are going through. So um, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there, being being out there with people and making sure that before we go down the admin side of whatever it is that just happened, and it could be an officer-involved shooting or it can just be, you know, some tragedy that, mm-hmm. you know, we're unfortunately called to, um, first and foremost, before all the other questions start coming in, are, are you okay? And, you know, I think to simplify it, 
Um, and I, th- I think it was with you, Rocky, when we recorded the last podcast. I think we boiled down to was to just be a good dude. Yeah. yeah. Like, don't overthink this. Just be a good guy. Like, you know, you know, we all of us know, in this room know each other very well. We all know, like, there's a vast, <laughs> a ton of different experiences, good and bad, within what this career entails. Um, you know, people been involved in critical incident shootings. Everybody's had more than their fair share of whether it be death notifications, horrific accidents, and, and everything in between. Mm-hmm. So there's a plethora of experience here, but, you know, if it, it doesn't have to necessarily be the guy tasked in that leadership position. It can be bottom-up, top-down, yeah. you know, peer-to-peer. Like, hey, dude, like, I know this is bad right now, but at the end of the day, in 25 years or 30 years when we retire, when we look back, what's going to be the one thing you'd be proud of what you did? Out of all the circumstances that led up to this <clears throat> traumatic event, is just check on your guy. Like, are yeah. you okay? I think, I think you're exactly right, Josh, when it comes to the idea that as a supervisor, the first and foremost object or the first and foremost um, job of that supervisor is to be there for his his units, mm-hmm. um, because. If a unit's involved in a critical incident, whatever the critical incident is, it could be the absolute worst day of that unit's life, of that officer's life. Mm-hmm. He needs somebody there. Oh, yeah. He absolutely needs somebody there. And what better person to be there than his supervisor saying, hey, I'm here for you. I'm, 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 whatever you need, I'm, I'm here for you. I mean, it's... It it goes a lot further than what I think people realize, too. You know, I mean, I I don't want to say it becomes a checkbox thing because it's definitely not because I've been at places where, like, the sky is literally falling and there's not a single person thinking, "Mm, I should check on this this cat. You know, it's almost like people tend to go to auto mode and sometimes we compartmentalize at the moment and we forget the human side. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I can think of a critical incident I was on where one of our employees was... I mean, for all intents and purposes, unfortunately, was dead when we got there and was miraculously through modern medicine, divine intervention, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, pulled through and, you know, is still with us on earth today. But getting to that scene and seeing one of our guys laying there completely lifeless, clothes are stripped off by EMT, and then seeing their direct supervisors running around trying to handle it as business because they were an autopilot. It was really eye-opening to how almost intentional you have to be to checking on people. Like that should now become part of your autopilot. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, and I'll just be honest with you, um, you, you know, you hit it on the head. Like lead up, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, the reason the boss went to autopilot is because it was traumatic for him too. Absolutely. And, and we don't think like that all the time. Mm-hmm. We don't think, man, our boss is sitting here and like, you know, it, it's there's a line that. Uh, as Schwarzkopf talks about, like, the planes don't fly, the tanks don't run, unless you give the order. And that order can bring about the death and destruction of American lives. And that same exact philosophy hits down even at the local station level. I mean, mm-hmm. you tell someone to go out and work hard, and then they get hurt. And now mm-hmm. you, you show up, and you're like, oh, my God. You know, I, I told them to push themselves and perform today. And, He's and there now, because of me. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and there really is. There's that side of it that people don't always think about and 
you know, again, the the formal leadership that goes on there, they're hitting autopilot because it's almost like a self-preservation, like, ah, this isn't real, so I'm going to autopilot, but it's completely ineffective. I mean, and that's what I've seen in almost every major incident that's involved a fellow employee is typically the those that are close from that rank and file um, tend to revert back to almost like new day on the job. Like, it's almost like they know what needs to be done, but the autopilot isn't quite kicking just right mm -hmm. and i think that's where it is really important that um you know it doesn't have to be the formal leader it can be you know a peer it can be you know just someone that's not worked so close maybe and you know maybe you get called to another agency who's going through this and just making sure that you're checking on their leaders i mean yeah it, it, you know not only their people but you know also up the other yeah. way so you mm -hmm. know if you're not as invested it's not impacting you right then and there it's it's hitting somebody and yeah. You know, being able to reprogram our autopilot to, you know, say, hey, dude, are, are you okay? Because, like, this is this is significant, you know, and that's that's hard to do to switch that autopilot. You know, Dave, like you said, you know, you go in as on, on autopilot. It should be one of those checklists. And the way I think about it, too, is, you know, on the ground level, you have that new guy. You say, hey, go out and work for me, and he does. You almost go to that, that why in the road, right? You can either check on him and be there for your guy, or you can just go on it and just work on your checklist and never check on the guy. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like he comes to, where do I want to go now? Oh, I don't want to work for this guy when he doesn't even care about me at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Or, yeah. wow, this guy really had my back. Like, I'm going to go out and do it again. I don't care how bad it was. I right. know that he's going to dust me off. We're going to be fine together. That's where that leadership, followership relationship needs to be tight. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, so kind of on that point, you know, for – you know, the frontline officer, you know, the first line supervisor on up to whatever rank. You know, we've all, I guess in this room, we've all had different things throughout our career that knocked us through a loop, whether we wanted to admit it in the heat of the moment or it took some time to set in. Like with each, for you specifically, you know, what, what signs or symptoms or whatever changes did you notice in you that you know, you thought, like, and I can use mine as an example. You things I thought I was masking, things I thought I was concealing, um, whatever. That that if anybody's listening, like, hey, you know, if they key on something, you know, you said or you said or Rocky said, and be like, man, that's, in, in, in you know, a name or a person flashes in their mind that they currently work with, mm -hmm. and it gives them because I don't think. At least in what we do, we don't really, we generally cover, hey, these are signs and symptoms of whatever. But, I mean, at least in my career, I don't feel that until it happened to me, I never got down in the weeds on all the different things leading up to, hey, I have to prove that I'm still mentally capable of doing this job and doing the fit for duty process. Um, so, I mean, I, let's start there. What tools can we give people? What are some things that... Like, you know, we've all experienced firsthand in different stages of your career because I think mine changed throughout yeah, different stages of my career. Yeah. I, I think one thing that's been consistent for me is I notice uh, I'll get real quiet when something's bothering me. And, and what that quietness is, and I've learned this over the years, is that it's me thinking about <clears throat> things that I shouldn't be thinking about because I'm, mm -hmm. I'm reliving it in my head, you know, and it, it started, you know, you, you and you know, I'm not trying to trigger anybody that might be listening, but you know, when you're when you're looking at a dead infant and there's no reason for it that you can come up with in your head, you can't go home and be okay after that. And that and that's a first acknowledge that it's okay to not be okay. Mm -hmm. But second, 
acknowledge that when your quietness is dwelling on it and that quietness is dangerous because that's what drives that wedge in, in relationships, you know, like your marriage, because mm-hmm. you know, you come home and your spouse is like, Hey, how was your day? And you're like, I don't even want to, I don't even want to go down that path because it's, my day, my day, I do not want to expose you to what I just got exposed to. You know, it's and, the, com- it's almost the complete opposite of what you need to do. Right. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. And, and that's, and that's kind of what, leading into the next point about that because you actually know what are the tools that you have to combat that and i think for me learning a when to recognize it for me like if i'm getting quiet and i notice i'm starting to think about stuff way too much that's a sign to me and i i don't want to expose my spouse to it and i'll be honest full disclosure every time something like that has happened even even throughout my career and most recently when it's happened to employees when employees gotten hurt and the things that people don't think about are like the boss just comes in and does boss shit, right? Like mm-hmm. we're doing payroll and we're checking boxes, but that's not the reality. We, we hide that shit. And I can tell you when you see when your guys land on a pavement and you don't know if he's going to pull through, that's an uncomfortable feeling. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, the last time it happened, which wasn't that long ago, unfortunately. And I remember getting home, my wife was like, Hey, how was your day? And I was like, ah, you know, she already knew what was going on. She saw the news. I go in the bathroom. And, and I could uncontrollably sobbing, right? I knew something was wrong. And that that's a sign, right? Like something needs mm-hmm. to change that so you've got to do something. That's that's your that may be your only warning sign to seek out help and seek out way to decompress. And for me, that's a social group. And and Josh, I use him like a lifeline because mm-hmm. even not that long ago, just just regular stress of life gets to you and you're like, and I called him like, dude. I just need to chat. We talked on the phone for like an hour mm-hmm. and it just made me feel better. But it's, it's having that, I think is huge, that social, um, social connection. Cause what will happen is, and I know I'm not alone in this, but you get quiet and you isolate and that's like mm-hmm. the worst thing that can happen. So yeah. it's recognizing and then knowing that, okay, I need to pick up the phone and at least, at least try. And that's yeah. just, you know, surface level, I guess. But. Yeah. I had a, I listened to a seminar one time where a sheriff from New York talked and he, same thing. He said he was involved in a, critical incident and for years after that he would just cry mm-hmm. he's like mm-hmm. i felt fine he's like tears were just coming out of my face and he's like mm-hmm. and people are like you're crying I'm like no i'm not until he realized like yeah i actually have tears coming mm-hmm. out of my eyes and he said it, it took years but finally after years and years and his, his wife was like you you know you need to talk to somebody so he said that the two other guys that he was involved in the incident with he, he like wrote him letters and kind of just outpoured himself in these letters and gave them to him and the guys called him up and they're like dude we literally have been feeling the exact same way and then it took them all three sitting down together finally after years of this incident happening to talk and just talk and you know how did you feel what did you feel right reliving that and it was hard for them he said at first but you know the more they talked about it the more the better they felt yeah and actually just finally being able to get that out you know and from a lot of times that, that first step in. i think is the scariest um yeah. you know it's it, like jumping off the cliff almost you got to yeah. just get there it's like the uncertainty you know one of yeah. my and a lot of people don't know this i don't, probably should even say it on this but it is what it is um, one of my biggest regrets, and, and I know Dave and Rocky both are pretty intimately familiar, like the, the one, I guess, case, for lack of better terms, where I broke, for lack of better terms. And, and one of my biggest regrets is the family of the in, involved, I guess, with the victim. Um, you know, when I started the investigation, you know, they had a lot of questions. And they're very, I mean, just absolutely remarkable people. But, uh, you know, just keeping them apprised of how the investigation is going, things like that. And, you know, I, I, I gave them my word. I told them I wouldn't stop until I found, um, you know, the, the person that was responsible. 
And, you know, in the course of working this, I was tanking, for lack of better terms. And as far as I know, and honestly, I don't, I, I think the case is still open and pending because I got my badge and gun taken and, uh, you know, and I honestly, I, like, there's a huge part of me that kind of wants to go talk to him. But, uh, I, I don't know. You know, it was one of the first times in my life that I've quit something when it actually mattered. And, uh, like, that's one of my biggest regrets. I think when it's all said and done, though, you can look at that and you had good intentions for it. You know, because you wanted to find justice in that situation. Not necessarily, you know, I wouldn't say look at it as a failure. Yeah. Necessarily, but, you know, that's just something that I think in that moment, you're just like, I want to try and do my best, do the best that I can do, and we do fall short sometimes. Yeah. You know, we're not always going to, we're not always going to meet that, that goal or that persona that we see ourselves sometimes we're, we're gonna fall short you know mm -hmm. um, I think for me biggest thing I saw in my career and starting out kind of hard to talk about but you know you start finding ways that, for me I was pushing myself mm -hmm. like I was isolating myself I was pushing my loved ones away I was short with them they were so accepting of me but at the same time too I was so short with them so angry towards them all the time and I could go out to eat with my wife or sit in a restaurant. And I'm looking at all these people and I'm just imagining everyone's just dying around me. Just always, yeah. everywhere I go. And I think for me, that was the turning point to get some help and to talk to people. And it's as simple as just having a conversation with the guys you work with mm -hmm. or just say, hey, you know, do you talk to somebody or just yeah. being bold? Um, just I was owning bold, it. Just owning it. Just owning it. I owned it. I was bold about it. And I talked to my guys at work about it, and they said, yeah, um, I'm actually going to get help, too, because yeah. I was sitting down and talking with my guys. I think, with you know, with what you just said, a couple things, but my opinion, which doesn't amount to a hill of beans, um, I think it's a significantly larger problem than the, we collectively, as a profession, or, you know, the umbrella of first response that we're w willing to admit. Um, and and, and the, the, the only reason I guess that I say that is, you know, like like after my case, you know, when I start kind of coming back into work and, and, and things like that, um, I can honestly say that was one time where I worked did right by me. Um, there was a lot of guys legitimately didn't know why I was off. Right. Um, and the, the first guy that brought it up, um, he was like, how was your vacation? And, well, you guys know how my temper is. <laughs> I've so, never heard of this. Temper? Yeah. This is shocking news. Yeah, so I literally was about to go across the desk. And I was like, are you joking? And he kind of looked at me, and I'm like, if you're not joking, you had better tell me right now. Because I was like, I don't need this career. I'm going to tear this man limb from limb. Like, that's not funny. And he legitimately didn't know. Like, he sat back in his chair, and he, like, deer in the headlights, like, dude, like, I don't know what's – and then so I kind of came to a crossroads, and I think you and I may have talked about this before, but it's like, hey, it's one thing to kind of be – not to be callous, but, yeah, I'm that guy, like, be known as that head case. And, and I'm not a head case, but I'm just generally speaking. But 
to be a liar too. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to own it. And he was probably the first guy I was, and I wasn't even close to this guy at all. Um, I was just like, dude, do you, do you not know why I'm off? He was like, no. And I literally explained everything to him. He was like, holy cow, like, dude, I had no idea. And literally, he, he had an office, he outranked me, and uh, he literally opened up to me. He was like, I've been struggling with some of the same stuff. And right then, I was like, it's cheesy as it sounds. It almost sounds horrible. Um, it made me feel better. I, and I know that's very selfish. Because you didn't feel alone. I didn't feel no. alone. Yeah. Right. You, you had an opportunity right there in that, just that brief situation with that interaction with that supervisor, right? He was mm -hmm. a supervisor. Yeah, he was. Where you had... The supervisor at a different facility. Yeah. You had an interaction with him. You had you had a crisis. Mm -hmm. You were dealing with that crisis, and because you opened up and talked to him, he then felt that freedom. He's like, "Hey, yeah. I can talk about it. I can I can open up as well." Yeah. And just to the point that you made just a minute ago about the idea that um, we we're not perfect. Right. We're, we're making mistakes. We're 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 not superheroes. And I think the idea that I just got a kind of a theory on this is the the field of law enforcement or the field of first responders in general is that you represent something bigger than yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And it almost gives you that 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 sense that you are a superhero because everybody you 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 look you look at the world and and you're kind of put on a pedestal that mm -hmm. you're a hero, right? That everyone says like, oh, well, that's uh, you get you get what I'm saying. Well, right? it, and just so people that are listening that don't know, you're almost identified differently. Yeah. Um, which you're identified by the the role you have in society yeah. as opposed to you as a person. For it's instance, a higher standard. well, right. and, and let's say you know, and I can only speak from my own experiences. Let's say, hey, I'm going to church. Right. Right. Um, yeah, people like, hey, that's Josh, but people always were more apt to ask me about my work. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, no one's asking the accounting guy. Yeah, no, they're not. I mean, they're, right. they're not, and I know yeah. that because my brother's an accountant. <laughs> 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 I kid you not. Every time we're together, they're like, which one's the cop? And yeah. everyone right. comes to me. It's yeah. like, yeah. So yeah. it almost. So why do you want to be? It, it, it's, it's a double-edged sword. It, yeah. it becomes your it identity, is. whether you want it to or not. And that idea that. Like you were talking about that that case that you weren't able to complete, and you feel that sense of failure, and mm -hmm. like, hey, I, I didn't get that done. Right. But it's the idea that because we're held to that standard, we can't fail. Yeah. I mean, we can't fail. That's a good yeah. point. And 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 a lot and that we're still human, regardless right. of what uniform we wear what position we have either as a supervisor or just as a road officer or hitting the beat every night doesn't matter we're all human mm -hmm. we're all going to make mistakes and the idea that when you do make a mistake and it eats at you and eats eats at you it's like you said it's that double-edged sword mm -hmm. that once you it just I'm not sure how to do Josh, me, to, me and Ebumper, we were we mm -hmm. sat down and talked to one of our guys a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. We had a really good heart-to-heart -heart conversation with one of our guys. And yeah. The biggest takeaway, like you, like you just said, is that you know, when you find out people are in these like situations and there's so many officers yeah. that are in the same situation. Like, we all have probably been in the same situation feeling-wise. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. But when do we ever talk about it? But 
you know, the one thing you said was when you find out that someone is is in that same situation, you know, you, you selfishly feel relieved that, wow, somebody amount. else feels that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, like you said, it's selfish, but you feel that way, and it's good to feel that way. And, and it's more to his point, right? Mm-hmm. Because we all think we're superheroes, so I'm looking at you guys like, you guys are the real deal. I can't show my weakness. That's, that's you know what I mean? That's, like, that's, that's exactly yeah. right. I want to be part of the group. So, yep, like, that's I'm, I'm strong, point. I'm tough, I'm fucking Superman, too. Let's do this shit, you know what I mean? Right. Hey, I mean but, even, even, even the idea that what we were talking about at the beginning about being a supervisor, these guys on your shift... They're looking at their supervisor, and there's some guys on your shift that may look at you like that superhero. They're like, hey, I want to be like him. He's my, he's my mentor. He's oh, the yeah. guy that mm-hmm. I look up to. I, I want to be like, nothing phases like him. Mm-hmm. And oh, then yeah. if something's phasing me, I can't let my my right. my mentor, the, the guy that I look up to. And he's I can't up. let my guys oh, exactly. see my weaknesses and, and either on the and both that's sides the, of that. That's the biggest misconception, I think, about um, you know management, leadership, I guess, is uh, – you know, there's a misconception like as the as people move up in rank that they either care less or they lose touch. And I, I'm here to tell you, at least for me personally, I can't speak for everybody, but that is the exact opposite of what happens. You care more, but hide it a lot more. And it's not until you know you start talking with Josh and we start this, you know, frontline freedom. We're mm-hmm. doing this, having these conversations where you realize that, you know what, if more if more people in positions of leadership would allow themselves to be vulnerable and let other people know that it's okay to not be okay for one, mm-hmm. but for two. Like we're going to get through this together because there's a sense of togetherness and that togetherness is the vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really think we'd all be a lot better off. I really do because, you know, you're trying to live up to a standard. If you have a mentor that mm-hmm. that you think is not shaken by anything. That's what you're trying to strive for. You're, you're trying to, to strive yeah. for. It. And the reality is there's a difference between being an emotional leader where you just react to everything and you, you don't want to be that guy either, right? Because right. someone's got to be the calm during the storm. But it's also okay to be the human that's calm during the storm. Yeah. Yep. And, and know, like, hey, once all the dust is settled, we've, we've accomplished our mission, we're done for the night, let's go talk about this because mm. that was messed up. You know what I mean? And I, I think that's a huge thing that sometimes... And it doesn't even really have to even be formal. No. Yeah. Like, like, I'm going to be honest, you know, up until, well, 2016, if you'd be like, hey, Josh, I'm really concerned about you. Let's sit down and talk. I'm like, dude, pound salt. Right. Like... Uh, pound salt. Right. Um, now I'm well. I've pretty much turned into like a sissy hippie that likes to shoot guns. But um, but but see, it's it's not a sissy hippie though, right? Right. Because right. I think it takes more strength to have this conversation that right. we're all having. No, than I think it does so. To do anything, and I and I think if we if we want to be honest with ourselves, if we want the perception to change of what can we do to help others, mm-hmm. it's it's a matter of breaking the stigma that there is there, you know, because right. everyone wants to say, yeah, we talk about mental health, it's important, but yet nobody really does. Mm-hmm. Like, it's something on a piece of paper. The, like, converse, yeah, the yeah. conversation yeah. now is say, hey, here's a card, Dave. Right, There's right. numbers on it to call it. Right, right. Good luck. That, call, that's, call, that's the extent of and it that's, and, and, and that's here's not a, a fix, man. Yeah. I mean... No. That's not a conversation. You know, like, for me, and, and we talked about this the last podcast, but, you know, for everybody, like, I, I can tell you how my career went. You know, in blocks, it seems like like zero to three. Like, dude, I'd have done it for free. Like, it's like I, this job is right. awesome. I get to drive fast and chase bad guys. Like, this is cool. Years three to five, for at least for me, you start noticing little things, and your eyes are rudely awakened. Mm-hmm. Whether it be and, and not to bash anything, but whether it be the judicial system. You know, you work all night at midnight, you go home, you sleep two hours, you get, you have to get back up, shower, shave, put your uniform back on, drive to court, dude doesn't even show up, and you're trying to get back home at noon to try to sleep for a few hours before your kid gets home from school. And you do that long enough, dude, like, mm-hmm. 
It wears. It, 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 it truly yeah. does. So, you know, at least for me, that three to five was my eyes were getting open to what it actually was versus what I thought it was in my mind. Yeah, it's all movies the first couple of years. That's right? it. It's all, it's all the, the stuff we grew up watching on TV. Shock That's it. All. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. Is great. Yeah. Like, and then, from, and then you get tired. Yeah. And when I start getting close to about that five year mark, I mean, the best way to describe it is I had a case of the ass. Like, my temper, like, I have a, I've always been a little bit of a hothead, but I'm, I had no fuse. And it would be things that honestly don't matter. Mm-hmm. Like, things that were making me mad sh- wouldn't make me mad today. Right. Um, and the level of anger outburst that was correlated with wasn't, it was. This, yeah, amplified. To say yeah. the least. Yeah. So, so what changed that for you? Well, it, so that went on until about year seven for me. Um, so about year five to seven, at least in my career, um, was it was kind of tumultuous. And without getting into it, all the reasons behind, there was just it was the perfect storm, for right. lack of better terms. Um, so I was like, well, I'll fix that. I'll just do the bare minimum, and um, and I went down that path. You know what I mean? Like, hey, I'm going to handle my calls. I'm going to do what I have to do. But with the exception of that, like, the judicial system doesn't care. You know, this person in leadership position position doesn't care. Why am I running my head against a brick wall that I thought at some point in my career I could change? And from about year seven to, I would say, close to 15, like, dude, I didn't feel anything. I was utterly, completely numb. And I know... Like we talked about this earlier, but so that seven to fifteen time frame, like, it, and this is a very arrogant statement. It was an arrogant thought at the time. Um, like I just didn't. I literally the only emotion that I, I can recall really ever feeling would be anger. I never really had sadness. I never really felt what I would deem as happiness. I never, mm-hmm. um, like all the broad range of emotions. I, I, I was just numb. Um, until honestly, until I broke. Now, for me, hindsight being what it is, best experience of my life. Looking looking back on those times, now that you are more in tune, I guess, with yourself, would mm-hmm. you think? Would you say now more than it? You know, your leadership, you know, pissed you off here or there, but experiences that you've had mental health wise, do you think that actually played an underlying role in all that that you didn't really notice as until, far as until you finally, you know, just that year five. You know, you probably at, at that point. Started oh, getting yeah. through a lot of you know critical oh, incidents. Yeah. How much did you think your mental health actually was playing an underlying role in that anger and that? Fuse? Didn't even remotely consider it. But do you think that was probably a, a big portion Absolutely. of it that you finally were able to you know you know open up? Yeah. I and here's the thing. Like if we go back to signs and symptoms for like you know everybody. Like um, I could go to dinner with my parents. You know, my wife and I we'd meet my parents for dinner or, or whoever, and I would literally sit at the dinner table. I, I would get the same comment from my wife. Don't be a dick, <laughs> right? Yeah. Cool, thanks. Yeah. yeah, and it's just like I I know the perception was, and it I allow that perception to be drawn straight up, no bullshit. That being said, that man, that was never my intent. But I literally, it didn't matter where we went. It could be like a work party with her friends. It could be, it man, it just didn't matter, unless it was with dudes I worked with. Mm-hmm. I didn't yeah. have anything in common. With anyone, right? Nor did you want to open up to it. So, no. And so, I, do you think? Did you at all like? Did you keep any civilian friends once you got in the line no. of law enforcement? No. 
So I think that's a problem that we as law enforcement yes. face is that's a huge. We just yeah. we get rid of our civilian friends because it's like I really don't have much in common with them anymore. You got or a different schedule. I got different schedules. Yeah, They're doing stuff on the weekends. Yeah. yeah, but keeping the civilian friends is so important. I think that's the biggest part of the issue is we get rid of our civilian friends and then we say ah oh, we really have nothing in common here. Um, I don't know. I think that's our, our biggest downfall. Thanks for listening to this episode of Frontline Freedom Adventure Therapy Podcast. If you have a story you'd like to share, send us an email at podcast at frontlinefreedom.org. And if you're looking for more information on Frontline Freedom Adventure Therapy trips, check out our website at www.frontlinefreedom.org.